Good morning, everybody. I want to call us to worship this morning from Psalm 95. Psalm 95, verses 1 and 2. It says, Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. Let's worship the Lord together. to spend some time together in prayer, uh, calling out to God together. And I just want to reference the early church in the book of Acts and the way they did the same thing. 
Acts 1.14, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brother. So here's these people devoted to prayer. Chapter 2, verse 1, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, undoubtedly calling out to the Lord in prayer. Chapter 2, verse 42, a bunch of people were saved in Jerusalem. The church in Jerusalem was growing. And it says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and to the prayers of people devoted to prayer. Acts 3, verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. Chapter 4, verse 24, it says, And when they heard it, they lifted, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, and on their prayer went. So here's these people. It says they're lifting their voices together to God in prayer. And so why were they so devoted to this? Why was this early church so devoted to prayer together, to corporate prayer? Several reasons. One, uh, Jesus had kicked the door wide open for this. If you think about that, the, the scripture says that we who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Great gift of the gospel of Jesus. He died for us so that we could have nearness to God. We were far away, deserved nothing but his anger. But he died for us so that we could be brought near. And one of those sweet fruits is we get to pray. And we get to call it. We've got the freedom. The door's been kicked wide open to go to God in prayer. So we want to do that. Another reason they did that is because they love God. You know, prayer is communion with God. So we come together as his people and we love him. We love the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we go to him and commune with him, commune with him together in prayer. And another reason is that they knew their weakness. Uh, Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Do you know that about yourself? Do we as a church know that about ourselves? That apart from, from Jesus, we can't do anything. If we know our weakness, then we'll go to God in prayer. Prayer is the, it's the, the breathings of, of humble souls, okay? Humble souls, humble before God that know our need. And so we call out to him in prayer. And so we want to imitate what we see in the early church. And we want to we wanna obey what the scriptures teach about us being a people devoted to prayer. So right now we're about to call out to him. And I want to encourage you that I'm not putting on a prayer performance up here. But rather, I want to encourage you to lean in. And we're going to call out to God together. We're going to address him and worship him and ask him for help together. So please, lean in and let's pray right now. God, what a sweet privilege that we get to come before you and call out to you and worship you like this. So, Lord, please hear us. We come to you, Lord, not because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercy, ultimately shown in the cross when you sent your son to die for sinners like us. And so we come based off of that mercy, Lord. We know you to be the God of mercy, the God of goodness and forgiveness. And so, Lord, we come to pray. We come to worship and offer up petitions to you, Lord. God, we're so thankful for you. You're a God 
of, of not only mercy, incredible mercy, but you're a God of power. <clears throat> and we know that, Lord. And so we call upon you, Lord, the God of power, you that made the heavens and the earth, that knows the number of stars and calls them all by name, that formed the mountains and creates the wind, that knows every thought of man. And you know the words on our mouth before we even speak them, Lord. And God, you're worthy. There's nothing that's too difficult for you. No one can stop your outstretched hand. So we come to you, God. You're the merciful one. And you're a God full of power. And we trust you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that you're so faithful. Every single word you've spoken, you bring it to pass. You're not a man that you would lie. Or son of man that you change your mind. You say it and you do it. You purpose it and you bring it to pass. Every single time, Lord. And God, I pray that you'd help us to remember that even this morning as we dwell upon your promises in your word. That you're a God that always, always keeps your promises. We worship you, Lord. God, we make promises that we can't keep. Either in our sinfulness we don't intend to keep them or, or because of our weakness we just can't. But Lord, you have none of those problems. Faithful in every way. Plenty of power, Lord, to fulfill all of your word. We praise you, God. We worship you this morning. Lord, thank you for your, your grace and your love to extend, to extend to us pardon and forgiveness. Lord, we know our own hearts. We know our own hearts, Lord. That if you were only fair, that we would deserve to go to hell forever. We know that about ourselves. But we praise you, God. We praise you for the rescue, for the deliverance found in Christ. And Lord, you said in your word that you, Lord Jesus, you always live to make intercession for us. And God, we trust that, that we'll be saved to the uttermost because you're our great high priest. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for interceding on our behalf. God, I lift up Grace Community Church to you, Lord, this local church. Lord, we know we need your help. God, I pray that you would make us a lowly people, a humble, broken, lowly people. God, God keep us from being wise in our own eyes. God, please keep us from pride. I pray, Lord, that you would destroy all pride in our own hearts, God, in our midst. Destroy it, Lord. And God, we offer ourselves up to you in that way, Lord, that, that you would humble us. Whatever it takes, Lord, to bring us low and to keep us low, please, God, do that. Lord, we'd rather be humble before you with trials than filled with arrogance and comfort. Sanctify your people. God, I pray that you would make us a holy people before you, Lord. Protect us from sin, Lord. God, you made us your ambassadors in this world, your representatives in this world. And God, we don't want to drag your name through the mud. We don't want to dishonor you. As the world looks in at the church, God, we long that Christ Jesus would be exalted and not belittled.
God, please make us holy. I pray, Lord, that you would protect us from, from, from the sins, God, of sexual immorality and selfishness. Self-centeredness, God, that, that tends to consume us. God, please protect us. God, forgive us for these things. Forgive us for these things, Lord, and give us new life in your word. Sanctify us and cleanse us by the washing of water of your word. God, I pray that you would make us hungry. God, let us, and we praise you, God, that you've done this so much already, but Lord, even more so, God, let us taste and see that you're good. And in that tasting, God, in the satisfaction of knowing more of you, God, I pray that we would become more and more hungry. Hungry for the knowledge of you. Hungry for your word. Hungry for your presence. Lord, we see at different times coldness in our hearts. And Lord, we hate it. We hate it, God. The scripture, Lord, that speaks about the lost, the, the, the losing of our first love. God, we hate the thought. We don't, want to be, we don't want to be those people, God, that have lost that first love, that the affections are low, the love has grown cold. We don't want it, God. Please keep us from it. Give us more of yourself, Lord, and provoke our hearts to worship, to affection-filled worship. Please, Lord, help our church, God, please. God, thank you so much for the body of Christ that you describe in your word, you describe your church as a body that's full of, full of diversity and yet unity, Lord. Different parts and different members and yet one body. And I praise you for that, God. And I praise you, Lord, that you've put that on display in this church. We have weaknesses. We know it, God. Strengthen them, please. But God, we praise you for what you've done. God, thank you so much for the the, the unity, the diversity and unity, God, that you've given us in, 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 in so many ways, God, in giftings, in ethnicity, in backgrounds, Lord, and all kind of different ways that you've given that to us. God, we praise you for that. And Lord, we look out into, the, into our world and we see that the world can't figure it out. But you said, that, you said that they will know that we belong to you. We're your disciples by the love we have for one another. And God, I pray that you would grant us more of that. Grant us more of that, God. More unity in Christ. Help us to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Fill our hearts with deep, deep love for one another, God, that confounds the world. The world full of hatred and strife and division. Confound the world by what you do in your church. God, please help us. Please help us, Lord. God, you said in your word that if we followed you, you would make us fishers of men. God, help us with that. Help us to be fishers of men. Help us with evangelism. God, give us hearts that, that are broken over a lost world and that long to see souls saved. And send us out into this world, Lord, into all the different spheres, our families, our jobs, this broken world. God, send us out and make us faithful and bold to proclaim the truth. And God, please save souls. Lord, we know you've called us to announce the gospel, but unless you move in power, no one is saved. You've told us to fish for men. 
But Lord, unless you build the house, we labor in vain. Please, God, lift up your name. Lift up the banner that you're the Savior. You're the God who saves souls. Put that on display, Lord. Thank you so much, God, for the ways that you are doing that and have done that. And God, we ask you for more. We ask you for more, Lord, that you would save souls. God, I lift up the nations to you. So many nations and people groups all over this world that don't have your gospel and no established church there. Lord, please get your gospel there. That you might, that you might be exalted among all peoples, nations, and languages. And Lord, if it would please you to use a weak group like us to take your gospel to the nations and unreached people groups, God, please do that. For the glory of Christ, do it. Use us, Lord. We open our hearts to you, Lord. Whatever you command us, we'll do, and wherever you send us, we'll go. God, I lift up the missionaries that you, the, the, that you have, Lord, that you've provided for us to be, to be behind and in Peru and China and Iraq. God, bless those labors. Please, God, bless those works. Establish your church in those places. Save souls in those places, God, please. God, I lift up Moldova to you, that you would do a mighty work in that place with the brothers and sisters that we know and and with those that intend to go there, God, establish your church in that place. We long to see you exalted there, Lord. God, I pray for the churches here in our area. I bring them before you, Lord. That you would strengthen your church, God, in this area of the world. That you would grant repentance where repentance is needed, God. That you would lift up the sufficiency of Scripture that men and women and leaders of churches would trust in your word. That a beautiful, glorious gospel, God, not diluted at all, God, would be preached all over this city. God, please build up, raise up your church in this place. I pray you'd plant more healthy churches that exalt Christ in this city. Father, I want to lift up to you the, the members of our church, God, that, that are having to leave here soon, God, or, or have recently left. And so many different reasons, God, from moving from jobs, God, or school, or whatever it might be. And God, I pray that you would protect these, these members, these brothers and sisters that we love, God. You'd protect them. You would care for them, God, and in the next city that you take them to, God, that you would use them there. For the glory of Christ, that you would use them there. That their love for you would abound more and more, God, that they would find a healthy local church to lock arms with, and that you would build them up there and use them to build up that church. God, I lift up to you the the brothers and sisters that are, that are looking to join our church soon. God, I pray that you would help them. That would, you would use the gifts that you've given them, God, to build up this church, to care for these souls. That you would unite them, Lord, with deep relationships in this body. 
Please help them, Lord. God, thank you for the gathering of your church. And we bring this to you, Lord, that we, we long to gather again as the whole church together. And to be able to take communion together, Lord, we long for that moment. God, please bring it about speedily. Let us all meet together again soon, please, Lord. And yet, Lord, we praise you for this time. I pray that you would come in this meeting. And right now, as we, as we sing praises to your name, and as we hear your word preached, God, please build up our souls. Build up your church this morning. Come and be with us in this meeting. We give this to you and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord this morning.
Everybody hear me? Everybody? Turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 14. And I want to start by just pronouncing this truth, that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Son of God. That's why John wrote this gospel. This is his case for that truth. He's he's laying out this case, and he tells us that uh, at the very end in chapter 20 when he says that he writes these things so that you, you may believe this, that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God. The Son of God. This man from Nazareth is the Son of God. What if you really believed that? What if the world really believed that? What should the magnitude of that truth be on your heart, on your life? How how should that affect you? If you really believe that the the eternal Son of God loved me and gave himself for me, what should that do? This passage we're going to look at in chapter 14, verse 15, starts with this phrase, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. How can you love somebody you've never seen? Peter asked that question. He actually makes the statement that we do love the one that we've never seen. How can you believe in one whom you've never heard? And how in the world are we supposed to know and believe and love and obey Jesus Christ? How in the world can we do that? We have a helper. And we have a helper. We have a helper because Jesus has an advocate. The one and same Holy Spirit. And I want to let you know up front that this This sermon is really connected to some of the things you've heard recently. Uh, I would say accidentally, quote, accidentally connected to the things that you heard from Ryan in Psalm 119 about delighting in God's Word. How in the world are we going to delight in God's Word? How are we going to see wondrous things in His Word? How? We have a helper. Dustin from Galatians 5 and then Galatians 6 about how we're to be sanctified and walk in the Spirit and how we pivot, or we're supposed to pivot, from weakness to strength in Christ. How in the world do we do that? We have a helper. And a few weeks ago, I, I preached on the advocacy of Jesus Christ, the efficacy of the advocacy of Jesus Christ. And today I want to preach on the fact that we have the advocate of Jesus Christ. So we have a helper. We have a helper because Jesus has an advocate. And that's what I want you to see. This is sort of the the, the main doctrinal statement that I want you to hear today. Is that the Holy Spirit is the advocate of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is the advocate of Jesus Christ to the world for his glory and for you and me, his people. 
And I want that truth, I want all of that truth to really sink in because my aim is to encourage you in that. And to encourage you in the power and the certainty of the work of the Spirit of Christ. And, and I want to press on you this utter reliance upon that. Upon that power and that certainty of the work of the Holy Spirit. That's my aim. From God's Word and hopefully with the help of the Holy Spirit. So let's pray for that help right now. Father in heaven, we call upon you only in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son. And we ask for that great promise that we see in this word right here. That you would send a helper. The advocate of Christ would come. And I pray, Father, that that would happen today. Oh, Holy Spirit, please do these things right here today. Fill us, illuminate your truth for us, convict us of sin, righteousness, and judgment, and above all, please, glorify Jesus Christ. It's in his name I pray. Amen. So what we're going to look at in the Gospel of John is actually five little passages in chapters 14, 15, and 16 what's known as the, the five paraclete passages. And that's just the, the, the Greek, Greek word there that's translated helper or advocate or counselor or comforter. So five passages that Jesus gives us about the Holy Spirit that he's going to send to us in chapters 14, 15, and 16. So I want you to, but I want you to see where this fits in, in the gospel because I think it is it is a beautiful picture where this is in the Gospel of John. If you know anything about the Gospel of John, how it starts with this awesome prologue about the Word, Jesus becoming flesh. God became a man, and then we see this bearing witness to who Christ is, to who Jesus is in his baptism, and John the Baptist bearing witness. And then that's what we see from chapters 2 to 12 in Jesus' public ministry is all of these things Bearing witness to the identity of Jesus. John the Baptist. The miracles. Miracle after miracle. This teaching with divine authority. But you also see these confrontations with Jerusalem. And plots from the Jews. While you also see faith in Samaria. And faith in Capernaum. And then it's ultimate crescendo in chapter 12. And everything comes to a screeching halt when we see the Jews reject Christ. They do not, they will not believe. And all of a sudden, there's this shift, this great scene shift from this fast-paced public ministry to this one room, this last night, with his disciples before Jesus is crucified. And that's what happens between 12 and 13 is we see the Son of God washing men's feet. We see the, the Last Supper. We see the betrayal of Jesus by Judas. And right here, when that happens, chapter 13, verse 31, you see now. You see the word now. Now is the Son of Man glorified. And that now begins what is called the farewell discourse. 
Jesus' farewell to his disciples, this close, intimate, personal time with his disciples before he's crucified. It goes on from 1331 to the end of John 17. And right here in the middle of it, we have these five sayings. These five little passages about the Holy Spirit. If you want to mark those, we're going to read each one of them and pluck things out of them. But they're chapter 14, verses 15, 16, and 17. The second one is chapter 14, verse 25 and 26. The third is chapter 15, verses 26 and 27. Then chapter 16, verses 7 through 11, and chapter 16, 12 through 15. And in those passages, I want to look at three different sets of declarations. That's what we're we're going to look at today. These declarations of promise that we will. Jesus says the Father will, I will. The sending, the promise and the sending and the coming of the Holy Spirit. These we will promises of the Spirit. And then second, the He is passages. These declarations of who the Holy Spirit really is. These titles of the person, of the third person of the Trinity. And then last, we're going to look at the work, the he will. He will. When the Holy Spirit comes, he will. The absolute certainty of what the Spirit is going to do. And so under those three uh, sections, the promise and the person and the work of the Holy Spirit, let's look at this first paraclete passage. John chapter 14, verses 15 through 17. Jesus himself says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask, I will ask the Father, and he will give, he will give you another helper. There's the word paraclete. He will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because he neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And so first, let's look at this promise, these we will promises of what the Father and the Son will do. And note first that the Holy Spirit is actually a promise. The Holy Spirit is a promise. This is... We will, the Father will, the Son will, or both will, always in concert. You're reading that right here, that they will, from the lips of Jesus, they will send the Holy Spirit, the Helper, the Paraclete. So the Holy Spirit is a promise from God. This new promise, which is an old promise. This this Holy Spirit is the new old promise. Just like Jesus gives us in chapter 13 a new old commandment. And he says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Well, he's quoting an old commandment from Leviticus and magnifying that in the church. And so this same promise of the Holy Spirit is new but not new. It's new and old from Isaiah 44 and Ezekiel 36 and Joel 2, which Peter quotes in Acts 2. And here's the new promise. I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. Verse 26. The Father will send the helper 
in my name. Chapter 15, verse 26. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father. And then Jesus says in chapter 17 that if I go away, I will send him to you. And then the last passage says when he comes. So there's this promise of giving and sending and the Holy Spirit actually coming. I want you to know that that throughout this sermon, I'm going to point out these awesome, beautiful connections between the, the life and person and work of Jesus Christ and the life and person and work of the Holy Spirit on earth. And here's one of them right here. Just as the Son was promised by the Father, now the Spirit is promised by the Son. Right? So, so all throughout redemptive history, we've had these promises of a Son, and now there's a promise from the Son of the Holy Spirit. And so this promise is also a gift. The Holy Spirit is a gift. Right here in verse 16, He will give you. The Holy Spirit is a promise and a gift. There's this giving and sending and coming. A gift. From who? A gift from God. A gift from the Father or a gift from the Son? And the answer is yes. And I want you to see another connection with Christ. Just as as the Son was given by the Father, now the Spirit is given from the Father by the Son. I want you to see these beautiful Trinitarian promises and actions and fulfillments going on here. The Holy Spirit is a gift from the Father by the Son. Jesus says, I will ask. And the Father will send. He says the Father will send, but He will send in my name. He says I will send to you the Holy Spirit from the Father. And then He finally says I will send. If I go, I will send Him to you. And so the Holy Spirit is a gift from the Father by the Son. I just want to ask you, has this this gift been given yet? We should all know the answer to that. But just over 50 days from when Jesus said this, over 2,000 years ago, this happened in Acts chapter 2 on Pentecost. The promised gift of the Holy Spirit was received by the Son from the Father, and He began to pour out the Holy Spirit on His disciples and upon His church. So this promise is now received and now poured out. This is super important, and I want to... Show you more of that in just a minute. And so that's the promise that we see. The promises of the Holy Spirit given to His people. Now I want you to see the person. There are these declarations, these titles of the Holy Spirit in these passages. And first, I want you to understand and know, and I hope you already do. I hope this is basic for you. But I want you to realize the Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit is a person. We know and worship and love one God and three persons. You hear that formulation all the time. One God, 
Three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a person. He is not a force. The Holy Spirit is a he, not an it. And I even find myself saying it about the Holy Spirit. But you see here in verse 17, him, 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 he, when he comes. And so I want, to know, I want us to see some really important things about who He is. The person of the Spirit. We see that from some of the titles that we're given here. And I want to stop for a second to make sure that you do understand this. I am not giving you a comprehensive sermon on the Holy Spirit. That would take, I don't know, years. But we are focused on what is said in just these few passages. And so the Holy Spirit is described as the paraclete. He is the paraclete, the, the helper, the advocate. He is the spirit of truth and he is the Holy Spirit. So first, the Holy Spirit is a paraclete, not a parakeet. Please don't write that down. Verse 16, he says, Jesus says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another paraclete. Translated in ESV, helper. When we looked at the advocacy of Christ a few weeks ago, I said that this literally means to be to call to one side. Sort of like we would say to have somebody who's on your side or, or to have somebody who's at your side. This is what this word means. And obviously that would have all kinds of different, uh, uh, different variations of how that might be understood. You've got this whole avenue of legal, this legal sense, these legal tones of advocate and counselor and representative. But you also have these helpful tones like helper, comforter, and counselor. And it's funny, there seems to be a whole lot more debate on how to translate this same word here than there is in 1 John 2. Like that's advocate. Jesus is our advocate with the Father, but here he's an advocate... And he's a helper. That's why most people say the paraclete. And so here's the question. Is the Holy Spirit an advocate or is he a helper? And the answer again is yes. These answers are really easy. The Holy Spirit is the advocate for Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit is the helper for his people. And that sort of double meaning is really common with John. It's amazing how a common fisherman can write so richly. The Holy Spirit is an advocate. The Holy Spirit is a helper. But I want you to notice this. It says the Holy Spirit is another advocate. It's another helper. See that is in verse 16. It says that the Father will give you another helper. What does that mean? But he's just not a helper. He's, he's, he's another helper. He's another advocate. He's the other advocate. So does this mean he's like a second advocate? He's a replacement? Is he, does it mean he's, he's similar to the previous advocate? And the answer is yes. And who is he an advocate for? He's an advocate for Jesus. We have an advocate. Guess what? We have another one who represents 
Jesus. The Holy Spirit is Jesus' representative, His emissary, His advocate. And so the Holy Spirit is the advocate of Jesus. I remember when I first figured that out. That, that was awesome. There's awesome implications. He says, I'll tell you the truth in verse, chapter 16 and verse 7. He says, I'll tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. If I do not go away, the helper will not come. But if I go, I will send him. So Jesus is going to go and he's going to send another helper, another advocate. Man, this is so important. This is a paradigm shift for me in my understanding of God, in our understanding of salvation, in our understanding of redemptive history. This is such a paradigm shift for me. Look at, I want to take a little extra time and make you flip over to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit is poured out upon the church and Peter begins to boldly preach with an understanding that is nothing less than spectacularly supernatural, He's pointing his finger at the very people he was scared of a few, just a few days earlier. And he's pointing his finger and said, you killed the Christ. And he says in chapter 2, verse 32, about Jesus, that he's not dead. He says, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. And being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and listen to this, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He, circle that, He has poured out this that you're seeing and hearing. You've got to imagine that scene. Ryan just described this prayerfulness of the people of God as Jesus ascended back to heaven and their prayerfulness as they obeyed Christ waiting in Jerusalem. And then all of a sudden, bam, this happens. The Holy Spirit is poured out. And the scene that Peter gives us is, this is Jesus in heaven being seated at the right hand of God. He's received the promise we, that we couldn't receive. He earned that gift. And now He, out of grace and power, is pouring out the Holy Spirit on His church. If you're here today, it's because Jesus poured out His Spirit and called you out of darkness. What a beautiful picture that is. Jesus directs the Holy Spirit. He is the advocate of Christ. Dustin preached a sermon from Acts 16 where it says the Spirit of Jesus. And, and this is what he said. I want you to see this. Uh, the same thing. I'll let his words say the same thing. He says the role of the Holy Spirit in redemption is to belong to Jesus. To be possessed by Jesus. And as it relates to our redemption, the Holy Spirit is Jesus' possession. This is His endowment. And when Jesus sat down, He was given control of the third person of the Trinity. This was the gift from the Father given in response to His perfect obedience in our place. Jesus directs the Holy Spirit. What a beautiful thing. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. This is how Jesus builds his church. 
And I want you to see the connection between Jesus and the Holy Spirit here. Just as Jesus obeyed the Father, now the Holy Spirit obeys the Son. What an awesome thing. I want, you to, I want you to listen to the similarities John gives us about Jesus and the Holy Spirit. In chapter 5, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, the Son can do nothing on his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. Whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. I can do nothing on my own. And now here in chapter 16, Jesus says, I still have many things to say to you. Well, how are you going to tell us those things, Jesus? <laughs> if you're going away, you're telling us you're leaving. You've got many things. How are you going to tell us these things? He says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he speaks. He will take what is mine, Jesus says, and declare it. You. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of Jesus, the advocate of Christ. So the Holy Spirit is an advocate for Christ and He's a helper for us. This is why Jesus is saying this. This is the reason for this whole discourse that we're reading about here in John chapter 15. He's trying to encourage them, He's telling them, He I'm leaving. He says, don't be troubled. Don't let your hearts be sorrowful. I want you to imagine. You've been living with the incarnate Son of God for three and a half years, and he says, i got to go. But don't worry. What? Don't go, Jesus. I don't want you to go. This message here that Jesus has given them is the encouragement for his departure. And what's that encouragement? He says, it's to your advantage that I go away. What? Because if I go, I'm going to send him to you. And so how in the world, what could be more advantageous than having the incarnate Christ with you? Well, apparently, having the spirit of Christ in you. I want you to think about something for a minute. We're in the same boat. The same application, the same encouragement Jesus has given to them should apply directly to us. We don't have, Jesus is not sitting right here with us. He's in us. The Spirit of Christ, who said he would always be with us, is with us. And so, the Holy Spirit is an advocate for Jesus, but the Holy Spirit is a helper for us, for Jesus' disciples. He says, I will give you another helper to be with you forever. And so this is what the Holy Spirit has done. He's come to advocate and for Jesus and to help his disciples for the glory of his name and for the good of his people. And so let's look at what it is um, the Holy Spirit uh, or how the, the, the Jesus describes the Holy Spirit. So he's an advocate for Jesus and his disciples, but what does he advocate for? And I would say two things, truth and holiness. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. Notice that in verse 16 and 17. 
He's going to give us a helper, even the spirit of truth. I don't, I don't know if you realize the magnitude of that versus what we might think or feel or we might see in modern religion. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth, not the spirit of fuzzy feelings. Not the, 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 the spirit of charismatic frenzies. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth and not just some random truth that pops in your head. Not just some new truth that he's going to secretly give to you. No, the truth about Jesus. <laughs> the historical, everlasting truth about Jesus. He will glorify me. That's who the Holy Spirit is. Spirit of truth. And Holy Spirit is also the Holy Spirit. This is another title in 1426. He says, the helper, the Holy Spirit. How is the Holy Spirit a helper? He's a helper in holiness. In truth and in holiness. So how does he do all this? How does he do this work? And so let's look at the, the he will passages. But the Holy Spirit will. He will do this or that. How does he, what exactly does he do? Every one of these five passages have this he will. He will do these things. And the first thing I want to point out to you is the certainty of that statement. It doesn't say he might. It says he will. And we have proof from history and experience, that not only he will, but he has. And he is. And he will continue. Like, so I want you to understand that these things are not sort of or maybe or for this group and not that group. This is what he will do. What will he do? He will forever indwell the disciples of Jesus Christ. He will illuminate the words of Christ to the disciples of Christ. He will bear witness about Christ through the disciples of Christ. And He will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment through the gospel. And He will glorify Jesus. This is what he will do, and I want us to look at each of those. I want us to look at like four different dimensions of each of those. I want you to see the promise in these passages. I want you to see the, the amazing connections between the Holy Spirit and, and Jesus Christ. And I want you to see an initial historical fulfillment of each of these. I want you to realize how this hasn't stopped. It continues to this very day, even to this very hour. So the first work that the Holy Spirit will and does do, the Holy Spirit will forever indwell the disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the promise. This is a promise in Ezekiel. I will put a new spirit within you. I will put my spirit within you. And here Jesus is, is saying the same thing. Look in verse Chapter 14, 16. 
I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. You know him, for he dwells with you, and he will be in you. Notice there the promise of indwelling and foreverness. He will forever be in the disciples of Jesus Christ. I want you to see the connection with Jesus. Just as Jesus was with his disciples, now the Spirit manifests Christ in his disciples. Jesus was literally, physically with them for over three years, and now he's leaving. What's going to replace that? The Spirit of Christ in them. I mean, how can he keep this promise forever? I, I, behold, I'm with you always. This is how the Spirit of Christ would be in them. He says, I won't leave you as orphans. I'm going to manifest myself to you. And the disciples say in verse 22, how? How are you going to do that? And Jesus says in verse 23, we, the Father and the Son, will come to you. We'll make our home with you. The Father and the Son, through the Holy Spirit, is going to come and make his home a dwelling place. That literally means a dwelling place for God. Now, I wasn't going to, wasn't going to share this, but I, I think it's awesome. Jesus uses the same word about dwelling place previously in verse 2. If you got the King James, it's translated mansions. Please let me pop that bubble right now. Look at what he says in verse 2. He says, in my house are many rooms, many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? So there's a, Jesus is preparing a dwelling place with God for us. But here it says that, that God is going to come and be, have a dwelling place in us. There's two preparations going on here. And I'm just going to quote Sinclair Ferguson. So I didn't get this for myself. This comes from Sinclair Ferguson's book on the Holy Spirit. And I've just got to share it with you. He says, most remarkable of all, Jesus goes to the Father in order to prepare a dwelling place for his disciples. While the paraclete comes from the Father in order to prepare a dwelling place for the Father and the Son. So as the paraclete Jesus makes a home for his people in the presence of the Father, as a paraclete the Holy Spirit makes a home for the Father and Son in the believer. What a beautiful connection that is here. So when did this start? When did this indwelling start? Well, a couple of chapters ago, Jesus said, Whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And the Holy Spirit afterwards had brought this to John's remembrance and he write this down. He said, he said this about the Spirit, Jesus did. Whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not yet been given. Why? Because Jesus had not yet been glorified. And so when Jesus is glorified, he receives the promise and pours it out on all who believe. This began in Jerusalem. In Acts 2. And then it began with Gentiles at Cornelius' house in Acts 11. And it continues to this very day. And it's true for you and it's true for me if you have believed on Jesus Christ. Do you not know 
that you are a temple, that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you, that in Christ, both Jew and Gentile are being built up into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit from God, from Christ, in us. He says this in verse 20. Jesus says, I'm in the Father, you in me, and I in you. Union with Christ by the Spirit of God. And this is for all believers. I hope you know that great passage in Galatians, in the fullness of time. God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you're sons, guess what? God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. This is, for, this is every believer. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Jesus Christ. Christ in you. The hope of glory. What a hope. But man, what a reality. Right now. Do you believe this? The triune God not only has made a place for us to dwell with Him, but He's made a place for Him to dwell in us. Second word. Second paraclete passage. Chapter 14, verse 25. The Holy Spirit will illuminate. The Holy Spirit will illuminate the words of Christ to the disciples of Christ. This is a promise from old. Jesus quotes it in chapter 6 from Isaiah. They will all be taught by God. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor. They shall all know me. Ezekiel says, I'm going to put my spirit within you, God says. And I'm going to cause you to walk in my ways and be careful to obey my statutes. And here, Jesus says in verse 25, These things I have spoken to you while I am with you, but the Helper... The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And I want to reach over to that last paraclete passage and kind of double dip for the sake of time. He says in chapter 16, verses 12, He will guide you in all truth. He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will take what is mine and declare them to you. And so here he is saying that just as Jesus taught His disciples, now the Holy Spirit will give them understanding. Illumination. Because man, you see how this initially unfolds. Jesus had taught them all kinds of stuff. They didn't understand. He, he had told them all kinds of stuff, but they didn't remember. He had told them all these things that were to take place, and they didn't understand. They didn't, they didn't get it. Remember how the Gospel of Luke ends in chapter 24? Road to Emmaus and then with the disciples of how he says, Man, I kept telling you these things. And it says, he opened their minds to understand. He says, stay in Jerusalem till I send the promise from the Father and you will be clothed with power. Man, that happens. That happened. Fifty days later, Peter explodes with understanding. 
Peter explodes with an understanding of the crucifixion and resurrection and exaltation of Jesus Christ from the Old Testament scriptures that he'd heard day in and day out all of his life. And we see the apostles teaching and the church devoting themselves to that. And then we have in our hands the illumination of the Holy Spirit in the minds of the apostles right here in the inscripturation of the gospel in the New Testament. He will do these things. He has done these things and He is doing these things. This is how we understand Scripture. Apart from the Holy Spirit, we can't understand any of this. Rightly. I mean, who is it that opens our eyes to understand the Gospel? The Holy Spirit, right? But yet, what does it say about Lydia? The Lord opened her heart. Well, He wasn't there. And it's not just conversion. It's not just the beginning. This is just the beginning, excuse me. And it's not just teaching, not just some lecture, some intellectual academic thing. He is guiding us in all truth. Like when you lead somebody that's in the dark, like a lamp shown to your feet at nighttime. He's guiding in all truth. He's teaching us, yes, He's teaching us to observe all that Christ has commanded He's causing us to walk in His ways. This is the promise and this is what He's doing. This is the certainty. And so here I want to ask you this. Here's a piece of application right here. Is this happening? Is He teaching you? Is He illuminating the Word of Christ and the words of Christ? Are you a hearer and a doer? Is this true? Or is Jesus a liar? He will do these things. Do you have this obedience from the heart? And if you, if you don't, or if you want more, like I do, here's three things to do. Pray. Pray. Ask for help from the Helper. This is what he does. We have a helper. If you lack wisdom, pray. Guess what? God will answer with the spirit of wisdom. He promises that in James 1. If you lack obedience, if you need grace, pray. Guess what? And the Lord who's seated on the throne of grace will pour out help in time of need. If you lack anything, promise from the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, ask the Father. He'll give you the Holy Spirit. The second thing to do is believe. Hey, you need to believe this. Believe this. Rely on this. Rely on these promises. Rely on their certainty. Rely on their power. Do not explain these things away. Do not say, yeah, but. That's unbelief. He says, thus saith the Lord. The Holy Spirit will do these things. Count on it. And the third thing is just to know more. To, to know more. Study the Word with a desire to know more and know that they will all be taught by God. Study the Word with this intent to obey and know that the Holy Spirit will guide you in all truth. Third work. The Holy Spirit will... Bear witness 
about Christ. He will bear witness about Christ through the disciples of Christ. Look at chapter 15, verse 26, the third paraclete passage. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So you see, the Holy Spirit is going to bear witness about Christ into the world. How? Through his disciples. Notice the connection to Jesus again. Jesus bore witness about the Father. Now the Spirit is bearing witness about the Son. This this entirety of redemptive history is about bearing witness to the Son. And then Jesus comes and John 5 tells us that there's all these witnesses about who Jesus is as he bears witness about who the Father is. He says, John the Baptist was a witness. All these miracles I do were a witness. God himself bore witness to me when he spoke from the heavens at my baptism, my transfiguration. And in chapter 12, that precedes the text we're looking at. And he says the scriptures, even Moses, bear witness about who I am. And guess what? The Holy Spirit's just going to continue that. How? By taking all of that witness bearing into the apostolic gospel and the ongoing mission of the church to bear witness about Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. Has this happened? Yes. In Acts, we see it explode. It continues to this day. Jesus said, I will build my church, and he has, and he is, and he will. And this is how he does it, with help from the Holy Spirit. And this is what I'm doing here today. I'm bearing witness to Christ. This is what you do, hopefully, every day in your homes, to your, to your family and your children in your workplace, to your coworkers in coffee shops, even on the street sometimes, to strangers. Bear witness that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and Lord of all, bearing witness to Christ. Now, what happens when we do this? Lord willing, number four. The Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment through the gospel. See this in chapter 16? Look at verse 8. He says, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Now, this is probably the most difficult of all five of these passages. And, and you could preach a whole sermon series on this passage alone, but I'm not going to do that. I know you're thankful. But part of the difficulty in this passage is actually the beauty of the passage's own explanation. Jesus is given an explanation, and that's what makes it hard. Because if the passage ended just with verse 8... No problem. The Holy Spirit's going to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. You know, leave out, let's leave out verses 9, 10, 11. Sure, the Holy Spirit convicts us over sin. He makes us feel guilty. He, he convinces us that we're not right with God. He, he shows us that we're in trouble, that we are condemned on judgment day. 
And all that's right, but when you add in verse 9, 10, 11, it says the Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father. Concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Now the interpretation is not so easy, but I hope you see, I want you to see that there's this connection to Christ. The first connection to Christ is this, that the Holy Spirit is just continuing what Jesus already started. The Holy Spirit is continuing this convicting work that Jesus began. In case you don't realize that, just read what Jesus said, what he taught. Just take the Sermon on the Mount, for example. If you even look with lust, you've committed adultery. Righteousness, he said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. In judgment, he says, remember, on that day, many are going to say to me, Lord, they're going to say to me on that judgment day, and I'm going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. This is, Jesus has been doing this, and now the Holy Spirit is going to continue. And notice this also, that every bit of this work of the Holy Spirit is directly connected to Jesus and the gospel. Sin, he's not, he's not just trying to convict and convince the world between right and wrong. This is not a morality issue. This is sin because of unbelief. Especially the rejection of Jesus Christ, who's the only Savior from sin. And in righteousness, he's just not trying to convince the world about righteousness and unrighteousness, but that the only righteousness that God accepts is found in Christ. And he's proven that by raising him from the dead. And he's not just trying to convince you that there's a judgment day. He's not just trying to convince you that there's a heaven and a hell. Everybody believes that. He's trying to convince you that Jesus is the judge and the king. And the ruler of this world is out. Therefore, the Holy Spirit convicts the world through the gospel of Jesus Christ. One commentator said that the Holy Spirit is the world's, what did I say, commentator or prosecutor? Okay, one commentator says that the Holy Spirit is the world's prosecutor. I really wanted to prove that case to you, but I don't think I have time. But if you look at what leads up to this statement, he's talking about that they're going to be hated by the world because Jesus is hated by the world. They're going to be persecuted just like he's persecuted. The, the, the world, and he says the world is guilty without excuse. And he says that they hate God and they hate Jesus so much that they called him a sinner. That they called uh, they thought they were righteous in crucifying him. And that they thought that Jesus was cursed by God. And they're going to treat the disciples in the same way. He says in 16 verse 2, he says, they're going to put you out of the synagogues. They're going to think you're a sinner. They're going to think they're righteous. And they're going to kill you thinking they're offering a service to God. And the disciples need an advocate. And he says the Spirit of God himself will bear witness. And when he comes, he's going to convict the world. They're going to prosecute you, but guess what? The Spirit of God's going to prosecute them. Guess who wins? You see this play out. 
You see this play out in the book of Acts. You see it play out in the very first sermon. You killed the Christ. You called him a sinner, a blasphemer. You thought you were righteous in condemning him. You thought he was a curse on that tree. But he's bearing your sins. You killed the Messiah. You killed the author of life. This happened synagogue after synagogue, town after town. But it didn't start with the Jews. It goes on today. This is the offense of the gospel. The, the stumbling block to the Jews, the foolishness to the Gentiles is exactly this. Do you realize that you are sitting here today 2,000 miles and 2,000 years removed and you are worshiping a Jewish criminal? Are you fools? Or is the Spirit of Christ in you? It's powerful. It, it goes on today. He's convicted you, or he should right now, I hope, convict you of sin. I mean, I can sit here, I can take you through the law, I can do a ray comfort with you, and take you through the law and show you how you've broken every one of God's laws every day, or I can show you how you've, you've broken, you've, created, you've committed the greatest sin by breaking the greatest commandment. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, body, soul, strength. You've never done that. For five minutes. Neither have I. The greatest sin. Got to be breaking the greatest commandment. But no. Here's what he's saying to do here. The, the sin that's most grievous. The sin that should bring us the most fearful expectation of judgment. The, the sin that should stoke the consuming fire of God's wrath the most. Which should bring the worst punishment. Is to be absolutely surrounded by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And ignore him. To trample underfoot the Son of God. To outrage the Spirit of grace. The Holy Spirit comes to convict you of sin because you do not believe. And if you do, praise God, He did that. He did that. And of righteousness, everybody around us thinks they're right with God. The only thing you've got to do to get to heaven is to die. That's a lie. Everybody says, well, nobody's perfect. I know that's the problem. But there's one who is. There's one man, the man Christ Jesus, who lived on earth and lived a perfect life to earn our righteousness and bear our sins. But he didn't stay dead. God raised him for our righteousness. And he has entered He's gone to the Father. And He's entered into that holy of holiest places of all in heaven. Securing our redemption. Our freedom. Our justification. Our righteousness. If you believe that, you're righteous. If you don't, you're still connected to the world. And the world's been judged. The ruler of this world has been judged. It's over. You, you, if you're still following after the prince of the power of the air, following after the world of flesh and the devil, you lost. You're in trouble. Judgment is coming. The cross is proof of that. And you better buy your knee to the judge. You better buy your knee to the king. Because God 
has commanded everybody, everywhere, to repent. Because he's appointed a day in which he's going to judge the world in righteousness by a man. The man Christ Jesus. And he's proven that by raising him from the dead. By your need of Christ. And if you have, praise God he did that. The Holy Spirit did that. And you... And this message about sin, righteousness, judgment is a joy. It's not conviction anymore. It's convincing. I am convinced. Truth. Are you? Man, the world needs more of this. They need more of this Holy Spirit conviction to see the sinfulness of sin and the glory of a Savior. And this is, as D.A. Carson says, his central aim. This is the Holy Spirit's central aim. Look at this. Verse, chapter 16, verse 14. He will glorify me. The greatest work, in my opinion, of the Holy Spirit is to glorify the Son of God in the hearts and minds of wicked sinners like me and you. Notice he doesn't glorify himself. He glorifies Jesus Christ. He doesn't point to himself, he points to Jesus. He doesn't speak on his own, he speaks from Jesus, about Jesus. He will glorify me. Just as Jesus came to glorify the Father, now the Spirit has come to glorify the Son. This happened at Pentecost, through the book of Acts, and to the nations. One of my favorite phrases of Paul, what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. And that's what we need more of. It's the exaltation of Jesus Christ. This is how people are saved. This is how saints are sanctified. Is to see the glory of Christ. We're transformed when we see the glory of Christ. I know that this sermon is about the Holy Spirit, is it? It's about the glory of Jesus Christ. I want you to see that. Because as we see that... It transforms us. St. Corinthians 3 says it transforms us from one degree of glory to the next. As we view the glory of Christ by the Holy Spirit wrought faith. You know how that little passage ends? It says, this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Don't you love that? Don't you love that? You can't, you can't make this up. Who would have made this up? Don't you love that? Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And I'll send you a helper. Praise God for the help. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for the help. Jesus, we praise you for doing everything to secure not only the gift of our eternal redemption, but of your spirit in us. Praise God for the spirit of God. Spirit, I, come, I pray you would come and do this work, not just now in this moment, but every day for your people. Build up the body of Christ for the glory of Christ. Help us to do these things for your namesake.
It's in the name of Christ I pray. Amen. Jesus Christ, the Father, Son, truth, and love. And we all say, Amen.